0: We're wrapping up a series on uh, from Psalm 105 this morning. Uh, we've been talking about thanks to thanks thankfulness and, and thanks, excuse me, giving and prayer uh, and praise. And so we want to we want to wrap up for the last the last half of the psalm. We've actually spent quite a bit of time on the first 25 verses of the psalm, um, which is just about the first half. We spent the last three weeks on just those 25 verses. This last half of the, of the scriptures, uh, this psalm, uh, covers a lot of ground talking about um, the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt. And so I'm going to go ahead and read it, um, and then we're just going to dive into it. And, and we're going to talk about what really is coming across here. Uh, up until verse 26, um, there's been, uh, the first six verses are kind of an opening. They're, they're a, a, an opening poem that goes through an awful lot of stuff. And then this last, these last, uh, then the middle verses, verses seven through eleven, talk about God's covenant, and then verse twelve through twenty-five talks about their time in Canaan, Um, and uh, and then we're going to come through here to verse twenty-six and recount the history of Israel after that. So let's begin with verse twenty-six. Excuse me, Uh, verse twenty-six. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. And they performed signs among, among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke and there came swarms of, fly, of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain, fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all their firstborn in their, in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. Now this is a recounting of the ten plagues. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the plagues that, uh, that God sent against Egypt. But it's kind of interesting uh, just, just to recount uh, the order that they are presented in. Right is nine one two four three seven eight, not uh, ten, so they are not presented in the order we have them in the book of Exodus, and two of them are not listed at all um, this is that's just part of uh, it's part of the way that the scriptures are uh, are presented it's part of the way that Hebrew poetry works um, and i 'm not going to bore you with all the the things about the rhythm and the meter of Hebrew poetry. But the way that it's phrased, it actually rhythmically works very well. It builds on, on each part. And then verse 37. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribe who stumbled. Earth was glad, or Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them, dread of Israel, had fallen upon them. And then he recounts the wilderness. He spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to give light by night. They asked and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy. His chosen ones with singing. He gave them the land of the nations. They took possession of the fruit of the people's toil. That they might keep his statutes. And observe his laws. Praise the Lord. That last word, praise the Lord, is the word hallelujah. Um, This is a very interesting retelling of the Exodus. uh, With Moses and Aaron bringing the people out of Egypt and into the wilderness. But those of you that are reading it, those of you that are familiar with the biblical uh, account of Exodus. Do you notice anything odd about this particular recounting of the Exodus and the wilderness journeys? There's something very interesting about this. Anybody notice something weird? doesn't talk at all about the rebellion. It doesn't talk at all about all of the issues. I mean, these are a group of people that literally every time they took a step, they had three complaints. It was like dragging along a bunch of three-year-olds. Are we there yet? I'm hungry. I need a drink. I don't like this. Why are there vegetables on my plate? I mean, there, there was a constant constant argument and not only that are they arguing but they're actually actively rebelling they build a golden calf they choose they try to get Aaron and Miriam to lead over them they there are people recruiting uh, rival armies there are people sending false prophets against them I mean there's there is all kinds of stuff going on completely not in the text and it's extraordinary that we we get a glimpse, I think, in Psalm 105, the psalmist writing from God's point of view, from the point of view of grace. From the point of view of looking down upon his people. I mean, look at this line, right, where it says, uh, there, there's a, a line in verse, um, he opened the rocks, where it is, uh, of them. there it is, um, he brought Israel out, verse 37. He brought, Israel, brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. God actually had to... Everybody over the age of 18 had to die in the wilderness before they went into the promised land. Not spoken about. It's not in the song at all. Um, now, it, it's interesting, right? So we read this, and there are a couple of different ways that you could take this. Now, I will tell you one of the ways that this is taken... Um, by people who don't believe in the authority of Scripture, they, they say, well, see, this is actually... The story of the Exodus actually didn't originally have all that difficulty and struggle in it. That was added later. That, 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 that just was added for the tension of the story, right? To bring the kind of bring the idea up. Um, that's not what happens. The reality is we are reading. We are reading in the Scriptures... Um, a recounting of the events of the Exodus that is seen through the eyes of grace. And that's all there is to it. And so when God looks down at his people through the filter of his grace, he's not concerned with all of the failures and stumblings that sometimes we become so consumed with. We become so occupied with all of the mistakes that we have made with all the struggles we have made. Now, it's not that we don't have a responsibility for those things. It's not that we are given permission to just sin and do whatever we want. Uh, What is theologically called antinomianism, that there is no law over you. You are able to do whatever you want is okay. But rather, God does not dwell on the stumbling of his people, but rather they're upholding by his power and his grace. And, and and so when we read this, it's important that we understand that that this is the perspective that's coming through. But I want to focus primarily on the last couple of verses. Uh, verse 43 so he, God, brought his people, Israel, out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. Now we we know, we actually have one of the oldest attested literary units of the Bible. So so um, by literary unit, I don't mean a book. I mean a, a particular section that was composed all together. If you read the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you can tell they tell different stories, not different from each other, but there's like self-contained sections, literary units. So there's, you know, the story of the serpent. There's the story of, uh, uh, you know, of the, the Red Sea. and And they're kind of, you can, they're, In the Hebrew, they're composed together. They're tight-knit units that are then integrated into a greater book. Well, one of the oldest of those units, um, and we know based on the vocabulary and the rhythm and the structure of it, is something called the Song of Moses, which was sung after the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea. Um, and it has a lot of archaic Hebrew in it. And so it's probably, when we read that particular passage, you can read it in the book of Exodus. You can go to the book of Exodus and you can read right after the Red Sea. Right after they cross the Red Sea, there's a whole chapter there. And, and if there is, um, and now I, I happen to believe there's a whole lot more in Moses' hand, but if there is a part of the Bible that we can look at it and read it and say, this is definitely the words of Moses. It's the song of Moses. This is Moses' song. And so the, the scripture says he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And they sing that song after they cross the Red Sea. Um, and Moses just kind of strikes up the band and starts singing. One would assume there was a little more compositional work involved than just, hey, let's sing. You know? I mean, I do that all the time. I'll, I'll start, I, I'm infamous for ruining songs by singing them with parody ridiculous words in them. Um, I just like to, my wife will be singing a song, especially, she really hates it when I do this stuff that she's going to sing in church. Um, but she'll be singing a song, and because I live in a, in a house with a musician, that song gets sung like 300, 500, 000 times a week um, as she's practicing it. And so the tune gets in my head, and so then because I'm a warped person, I start to sing alternative lyrics to the song. Um, which she really does not appreciate. Um, and I've gotten really good at being really stupid in this particular regard. Um, and, uh, and so I'll start singing and she'll be like, stop it, you're ruining the song for me. You're, I'll never be able to sing it the way that you, you know, and, and I, I wreck it all the time. But that's not the kind of composition that Moses puts in. There's a carefully composed song that the people sing as an anthem as they walk. Now, um, how many of you have ever taken a really, really long walk? Now, by really, really long walk, I don't mean you were forced to park in the extension lot at the mall on Black (laughs) Friday, all right? I mean a really long walk, like 20, 30, 100 miles, a long walk. Anybody really done that? I know Leo and Deb have walked... Wes has done one. Uh, Leo and Deb walked the, the Camino in, in France and Spain. It's a long walk. Walking is... um, How do I put this delicately? Boring. And so you tend to start doing stuff to keep your brain engaged. You start telling stories. We used to play Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. You guys know what that is? It's uh, where you figure out... Uh, And we would do it with different actors, but my friend Joel and I, were hiking, he would name two completely ridiculously disconnected actors. And I had to get from one to the other within six movies. And then I would do it, and we would go back and forth. I mean, that's like John Wayne and Alyssa Milano. I mean, like completely separate people, and you had to kind of try to figure out how to get them to work, and it's really fascinating how small a world Hollywood actually is, and you can usually uh, do that. We, we play a game now called Three Degrees of Christians in New Hampshire, um, because it, within about three degrees, we can get from any one Christian to another one, because there's not a lot of us, because this is the, one of the most unchurched regions in the whole country. Um, and so we're like, oh, do you know so-and-so? Yeah, I know that person. Well, I know that person. That person knows this person, that person. We went to this, oh, there, there we go. Um, And always make these connections. Well, you just get bored when you're walking. Well, the people of Israel walked for 40 years. So guess what they were supposed to do while they walked? They sang. Um, Three times a year, uh, Israelites had to go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Um, And the last part, the last book of Psalms, the last section of Psalms, is all songs that they would sing when they were getting within sight of Jerusalem. And and if you go to Israel, when I mean in sight of Jerusalem, all right, like Israel's not a big place, right? It's smaller than New Jersey, um, narrower, better roads, and nicer drivers. And I keep in mind that Israel has terrorists driving on their roads, and they're still better drivers than New Jersey. Um, but uh, I had to drive the Garden State Parkway. Let's not get into that. Um, so anyway. As they were walking, when you're in Israel and you see Jerusalem, you can see Jerusalem from forever away. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it's very obvious. It's the highest point. And uh, if you're coming from the east, particularly, uh, you walk through the lowest point of the earth. You have to go through the Jordan River Valley, um, which is part of the Great Rift, in order to go up into Jerusalem. So when you are in the Bible, they say, let us go up to Jerusalem. They mean it, literally, you're going up, you're climbing up. And there are songs that they sing while they're hiking the mountains. There are songs they sang in the wilderness. There are songs they sing when they're working. That they, because the Israelite society was a pre-modern, there were no smart screens, there were no smart screens. What does that even mean? There, were, there, were no, um, there, were, there was nothing to distract you, so they sang. He brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. He gave them a song. He gave them a thing to do. This, this representation of their experience of his grace through their journey from Egypt to the promised land is meant to be joy and singing. Verse 44, he gave them the lands of the nations. They took possession of the fruit of the people's toil. Verse 45 is really the point of the whole thing. Um, this is the big idea of this verse. Of this passage. That they might keep his statutes. And observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Now, when we read that line, I think because we live in a modern society, we think, okay, keep his statutes—that means obey the law and uh, observe the laws. All right, that's we observe the laws, right? That's what we're supposed to do. There's two very specific visual images that have been running through the text that are that culminate here. The first is the word "keep." All right. Um, The the Hebrew word here, it indicates the idea of guarding or protecting something. So not keeping the law in the sense of I follow the laws, but rather that I guard and protect the statutes of God, the guidance of God. He said, and and the whole passage is, okay, we, we go through all of this. We've talked about all this journey, the history of Israel. He says, so that I would have a people... In the promised land, I would fulfill my promises so that they could keep my statutes. So they could guard, so they could protect. Now, why do you keep or guard something? You keep or guard something because it is valuable. It is precious. And it needs to be passed on to someone else. Um, It needs to be be cared for. Because if it's not cared for, um, it can be lost. Uh, when, when we read in the book of Genesis, God puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and their job is to keep the garden. It is, it is to protect it, to care for it, to make sure that it stays flourishing and alive. To keep the statutes of God is not just to say, okay, here's the list of rules and the bag of tools, and um, as long as we do this, we're a good Christian." But rather it is that this thing is living and true and real. What God is doing in us is a living uh, interaction and and relationship. And and, and there's there's something organic about it that grows and matures and changes. And we are called to keep the statutes of God. To keep them alive. To protect them. To pass them on to the next generation. The whole lot of Christianity fails in this regard. When we turn the faith of God, the faith of the living God, into that, that bag of tools, that set of rules, as long as you do this, you're a good Christian. As long as you check off the lines. I do not know who invented the idea that good Christians keep the Ten Commandments, but whoever did, I want to punch him in the face. Alright? Who? Sure that it came before them, but it's a good it was a good point. This idea that we make this list. We make this list, and we'll just keep this list. Well, most of the Ten Commandments are pretty easy to keep. I very rarely am tempted to murder someone. (laughs) Uh, You know, I I don't really have that problem. I have never, ever made an idol. Like, actually molded one. A graven image. I've never sat down and gone, I'm going to make me a Molech. All right? It just doesn't, doesn't happen. Some of them are really easy to keep. I mean, the Ten Commandments, it's not hard. In fact, when Jesus, was, Jesus challenged somebody who came to follow him, he said to him, have you kept the commandments? He says, I kept them from the time I was a child. That's easy. And then Jesus says, so give away everything that you have. And the guy runs away because he, he, he goes away grieved because he's not willing to sacrifice his possessions to follow Christ. See, it's not about a set of rules. It's about priorities. It's about the nature of God. It's about allowing what we see of God in the scriptures to transform how we live our lives. The the submitting ourselves to the authority of a God who loves us enough that when he tells our story, he does not tell our failures and our struggles. He speaks only of grace. And that is one who is worth keeping the word. I think people get it backwards somewhere along the line in the Middle Ages, but even before, we developed this idea that God is a big bully with a baseball bat waiting to whack the sinful. That um, one of my favorite. This is a, this is a crazy move, but crazy illustration. Just stick with me. There's a big idea here. All right. So I love the John Wick movies. Now I know that they're not for everybody. I just think it's great that Bill or Ted, from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, grew up to be an assassin for the Russian mafia. Um, I love the John Wick movies. So I saw this movie come in, and I love Nicolas Cage. Now, I know that that sounds weird. I love the fact that Nicolas Cage seems completely oblivious to being Nicolas Cage. He embraces being Nicolas Cage like nobody else's business. Anyway, this movie came over on Hulu called Pig. And it looked like a John Wick-esque kind of movie. I was like, cool. Nicolas Cage has got a pig that somebody steals, and he goes and gets his revenge. And Nicolas Cage is going to turn out to be an action star. Boy, was I wrong. (laughs) Nicolas Cage gets revenge on the guy who steals his pig. I wish I was making this up by cooking a meal for him. Very anticlimactic movie. Bizarre movie. Weird movie. Um, it was literally John Wick, except if John Wick was a chef in Portland. I'm not making it up. That's how the movie, that's what the movie is. Um, he gets the revenge. You know, we, we tend to think that God is the revenge getter. He's the one with all the guns and all the stuff, and he's out to get the evil people. So as long as you fly under the radar and you're not evil, you're just kind of sort of not great. You know, we call my dog, we say to Wallace all the time, I was like, who's our so-so boy? Because he's not a good boy and he's not a bad boy. He's just kind of in between, you know? And so we, we say that we, you know, oh, who's a good, who's a so-so boy? And he's like, that's good enough for me. Um, most of us want to be so-so boys. We want to just coast through. We're not evil enough to catch God's attention and we're not really holy enough to catch God's attention. We're just kind of floating through and if we can get to heaven, that's okay. But God calls us. The God who gives us grace. He he reminds us that he is not just the judge. He's just just the punisher. He's the caretaker. He's the shepherd. He brings us through the garden. He's the gracious one. And in response to knowing God as he is. Not as we are told he is. We keep his statutes. We guard. We protect. We nurture. We pass on. And then. The second line, he says, and observe his laws. The, the word laws is Torah. Um, Torah is, is the word for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy in the Hebrew Bible. They're the Torah. Torah means instruction. It doesn't really mean law. It gets translated as nomos Greek for, for law um, in the Septuagint in the New Testament. So everybody reads it and it's translated as law. But, but Torah means the teachings. It means the instruction. The, the, the caregiving. And when we read the word observe, we tend to think of, uh, I observe the rules. But this, the Hebrew word here is literally the word to see, to keep in focus, right? It is, it is the idea of, of being able to see what God is teaching us. Putting it somewhere that it is visible. Putting it somewhere that is up front. Something that is unavoidable. Do you ever notice <clears throat> that the signs? Uh, I, it, it's always it's always kind of thrown me off that speed limit signs in America are apparently made of an invisible fabric. Now I, I don't I don't mean this I mean I joke around because nobody actually drives the speed limit right when you drive the speed limit everybody gets mad at you I drove my dad down to New Jersey and back um, my father has has had really bad experiences um, in cars um, and and by bad experiences I mean that in 2004 he was in Iraq um, and he was in a bus that got attacked by terrorists with AK-47s that's the kind of experiences my dad has with cars. Um, and so we're going to New Jersey, which is roughly the same. And, um, and we were, we were driving down to New Jersey in a minivan. And so one of the things that my dad always does is he always drives the speed limit on the highway. Now, on secondary roads, he also drives the highway speed limit, but on the highway, he drives the high, the speed limit. So we're driving and I put the cruise control at 55 because that's what the speed limit was. The irritation of me observing the law in in New Jersey and in Connecticut and New York, the irritation on everybody else was very, very audibly observable. <laughs> all right. Um, as we, and I was over on the right lane where I belong. You know, I wasn't trying to pass people. I was chugging along with all the hats. You know what I mean? The cars where all you can see is just the hat because it's perched on top of, somebody said, there's the hats and the remote control cars. There's, there's the, the ones with the guys with the hats, and then there's a the car, you're going, is there a driver? And you come along, and there's just a little little <laughs> Italian lady driving a Toyota Corolla. And, you know, and I'm in that lane, and I'm, I'm on cruise control, and we're just cruising along, we're, we're at a speed limit. And there were people, I mean, I used to say that the people with Ford Focus, or uh, Ford, uh, not Ford, uh, Toyota um, uh Priuses no no insult to anybody that owns a Prius but for some reason the people in the Prius the Priuses I guess it takes a long time for that bad boy to get up to 65 and they do not want to slow down the batteries are going to give out or something and and they come flying up but the Tesla people are the worst no if you own a Tesla I got nothing against you but goodness gracious that sucker it it sneaks up on you first of all because it doesn't make any noise And then they come flying by you like they got a Porsche or something. And their hands are off the steering wheel. That really throws me off. They're like doing their makeup and speeding. Um, So this is what's going on in New Jersey. I'm getting people really, really mad at me because I'm observing the law. Because I'm aware of this thing. But I started, it got me thinking, right? We put the speed limits on white signs. They're, They're easy to miss in the background. We put stop signs and yield signs and stuff in red. Maybe if we put the speed limit in a color people actually saw, they'd at least know what they were ignoring. But the reality is, when we have a law that we want to observe, it is something that we need to see, that we need to look at, that we need to be able to see from wherever we are. To observe the law of Scripture is to put it in such a place The memorials to God, the memorials that we talked about, building memorials to Thanksgiving, we talked about remembering what God has been doing. You've got to put what God is doing in a place where you can see it. That's one of the reasons we encourage people to do things like read the scriptures daily. Not that that's a a biblical command that's going to make you a better Christian or anything like that. It's one of the reasons we encourage people to connect with the community of believers. To to be encouraged with with Christian friends and and those who, who can lift them up. Because if you don't keep what God is doing, the instruction of the word, someplace visible in your life, before too long you don't know where you put it. You don't know where it went. Um have you ever you ever had something uh, that just was super important to you and then you put it somewhere you didn't you said I'm going to put it here and I'm going to keep it safe and then it stayed safe because you immediately forgot wherever it was that you had put it and years later you were moving out of the house or something Or just renovating or or doing something. And you opened up a supposedly safe place and found that thing that was so important to you that you had lost. If something is truly important, if your faith, if your trust in God is truly important, then it cannot be put someplace to be kept safe. It must be guarded in the open. Now, let me just give you the last piece of this, really where this idea comes from. When, a, when an ancient king rose to power, he would put his laws on a column, on a stela, on, a, on a, a prism, any number of things, depending on what culture. And they would put it somewhere very public that you had to pass it on your way everywhere. Everywhere. Now, later on, this became putting up statues of the kings because kings got tired of writing laws. All right? But this is actually in the book of Deuteronomy. There's a, there's a thing called the law of the king, that the king is supposed to copy out the law of God and place it prominently so that everyone will see it. And the idea was that if you ever had a question about what the king's law was, you could go to this very public, very visible place, and you could have one of the scribes read it to you. This is what the king's law is, and it solved a lot of problems. Well, Lee killed my donkey. Sorry, Courtney. I, it's horrible when somebody kills a donkey. I know. All right, but Lee Lee killed my donkey. Well, what? And so I have decided that Lee needs to give me his house in repayment for my donkey. Lee's like good luck to you buddy there's <laughs> a lot of work to be done and, and Lee says that can't possibly be right there's no way that a house and a donkey are equal so he goes to the town square and he calls for a scribe and the scribe comes out or the judge comes out and he says what's the payment for a donkey Eric says it's my house that can't possibly be right and the scribe who knows the law of the king that is set out, he's able to go through it, and he says, "Nope. It says that if he's got to either give you another donkey or pay you four times the donkey's worth. That's what he's supposed to do. This is the law. That's what observing the law means—to actually be able to go to the law, to go to the Torah, to go to the Word of God." And say, what does it mean? And because it is public, because it is in front of us, because we are constantly exposed to it, we are able to see it, and in seeing it, we are able to obey it. You will not obey a law. This is where I come with the speed limit thing. You will not obey a law that you do not see. You will not obey a law you w- that you do not see. Did you know, not sure if you guys are aware of it, that rioting is illegal? And yet last summer, there were riots everywhere. And everybody was making justification for it. You only obey the laws that you see. Now, I wasn't alive when this happened. But in the 70s, there was a a protest. Um, There was a lot of protesting in the 60s and 70s. Some of you will attest to this. There were a lot of peaceful protests. And then there was one protest at Kent State where the military opened fire. And as soon as they did, suddenly everybody decided that protests better be by the letter of the law. Because the the law became visible. It became real. Do you know that sometimes God punishes us so that we can remember what his law is so we can see it? Because we've forgotten what it looks like. Do you know that God sometimes in his grace... Draws attention to things that we have forgotten, that we put in our back pocket, that we put for safekeeping, thinking that we had, uh, we were okay, we remembered it. Sometimes God has to draw our attention to it so we can remember who he is and who his, what his grace is so that we can again enjoy living in his presence. That's not fun. So we are commanded to observe the law. Put it somewhere visible. Bring it to the forefront of your thinking. Bring it to some place where, for some folks reading every day, some folks read through the Bible every year, all right? Some folks it takes 10, 15 years to get through the Bible. But as long as it is in the front, as long as we are willing to observe and ask the question, what does God say? About this, what does the Bible say about this? We observe the law. That's why we are where we are. That's why we we live in the promises of God. Not that observing the law secures our place in the promises and the covenants of God, but rather, since we are as Christians in the covenant of God, in the promises of God, we have an obligation to keep, to guard, and to observe to see